So I just want to quickly say thank you for everyone that presented and participated today. I think we can all agree that it's already been a really, really good session. And we're really glad that we can finish with Sir Hugh Strawn. He's a Professor of International Relations at the University of St Andrews. He is an Emeritus, emeritus Professor at All Souls College, Oxford, and a Life Fellow at Corpus Christi College, Cambridge. He has written a number of books, including The First World War, Volume 1, To Arms, The First World War... Don't ask me about that. <laughs> <laughs> the First World War, an illustrated... Feel free to say which ones are allowed to ask you about. <laughs> and an illustrated history... Well, don't ask me about Volumes 1, and 2 and 3, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and The Direction of War. Our team has been a long-time fan of Sir Hugh's work, and he was our first choice for keynote speaker. Not only because, as many political scientists often need, he grounds much of the things we discuss today, and I'm sure we'll discuss tomorrow, in the historical context, and identifies what is really new as opposed to what appears to be new. But also because he eloquently captures some of the factors that led to, and some of the dangers of, some of the issues that have been discussed and will be discussed tomorrow. As, as Hugh notes in Direction of War, his work rests on the presumption that strategy is useful and even necessary if states are to exercise military power, a belief, again, that has been reflected throughout this conference and will, be continued, will continue to be reflected. He, today, he'll reflect on strategy in democracies, which I'm sure is also what we'll all agree is a great topic for him to touch upon. And so I really look forward to hearing what he has to say. Thank you very much indeed. This is, in every sense, uh, a, a trial run because I have never, ever used my laptop to lecture from before. I normally have a scrappy piece of paper. And I said to Abigail, I come and speak about strategy and technology. So I have my scrappy piece of paper. Uh, and then, given what I've heard today, from which I've learned a great deal, I thought strategy and democracy might be a better topic um, on which I have something written. Uh, and the advantage of being on my laptop is I can actually probably read it, unlike my own handwriting, but then that will also mean that I'll have to look down at my laptop, which I normally never do. I want to begin with a, with a, a story, uh, and I'm sure all of you have got a sort of equivalent of that. Uh, and the story is this, um, that in uh, June 2012, I was with a a NATO group who were in Kabul, and I went to take part in a discussion in a lecture theatre, actually not dissimilar to this, except the paint was peeling off rather more in, the, in Kabul University, um, with political science students. I hasten to say I'm not a political scientist. I'm a historian who happens to have strayed into IR in my retirement uh, rather than a political scientist. But with a group of political science students, uh, and we thought, we in the NATO party, thought that what would be really interesting to discuss with them was uh, who would be the next president of Afghanistan, uh, given uh, the imminent presidential elections, or at least by June 2012, people were thinking about Karzai's successor and what would happen. Um, they, however, had a very different agenda, which was that the NATO surge was, of course, already being reduced, and people were thinking about the withdrawal uh, of NATO forces from active operations in Afghanistan, and Ashraf Ghani in particular, uh, in his then role, was particularly concerned about the pace and the pattern of that, uh, that reduction in strength. Um, things became particularly incensed because one student 
was uh, especially insistent on this issue of NATO withdrawal for a very good reason, and that was um, that on the 1st of May 2012, so only just the previous month, President Obama, of whom we've already heard uh, today, and I, he's entirely relevant, I think, to the discussions we're having uh, over the course of today, President Obama um, had met Karzai in order to sign the enduring strategic partnership between the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan and the United States of America. Um, and that enduring partnership included uh, arrangements for a long-term strategic relationship and for the possibility, uh, as of course we've seen, for the United States forces to remain if in Afghanistan after 2014, not just for the purposes of training and assistance, but also, of course, uh, as they are deployed for continuing counterterrorism operations. Now, that deal had been much trumpeted on television in Afghanistan, with Obama and Karzai both appearing in order to celebrate its signature. Uh, at 4 a.m., 4.01 a.m., actually, if you look online, uh, Afghan time, uh, Obama then appeared on television once again from Bagram Air Base, speaking to the people of America to tell them that the boys were coming home. So the reason for the fury and frustration and perplexity of many of the Afghan students was precisely what was the message that the United States was giving. Was it staying or was it going? Now, you know, and in many ways it's part of what we're talking about, that you can give that mixed message when you do, uh, whether it's proxy war, uh, uh, remote warfare, whatever title you want to use, uh, because you are actually uh, trying to uh, massage a message which is going to play differently uh, in one capital city from another. And that really is the nub of what I want to talk about this evening, because when um, Rupert Smith, 15 years ago, wrote The Utility of Force, um, that book uh, was much quoted, has been subsequently much quoted, uh, for his discussion of war among the people. Uh, and the observations about war among the people are actually entirely familiar to anybody who thinks about irregular warfare, counterinsurgency in particular, um, and the conduct of counterinsurgency. And, and it's a very fair reflection of Rupert Smith's own military career. But what is much more important in contemporary conflict is not so much war among the people, but another point that Rupert makes in that book, which is the point about much current conflict, um, and I'm talking about 2005, and of course we're addressing a rather different picture in 2019, which is also part of what I want to raise. Uh, much current conflict uh, in 2005 was theater in the sense that it was being fought out by a small group of actors in a particular part of the world who were visible to a global audience. Uh, uh, and the, you know, there were all sorts of, of as, as, as Rupert put it in his book, uh, and he's not the only person who's written about this, there were all sorts of orchestrators behind these actors in theater, um, and they included domestic audiences in the participant countries. So we may have been talking about remote warfare today, but the crucial question in many respects is for whom is it remote? Because for people in the United Kingdom, for example, is war in Afghanistan actually that remote? Uh, the answer is yes, in many respects it is. Even when British forces are heavily engaged in Helmand, it's remote, it's a long way away. On the other hand, of course, 
it's connected for all sorts of reasons to do with globalization and interconnectedness and all those, those rather vague terms which actually annoy me and I wouldn't normally use uh, because the world has been global for some time, I think. It hasn't just become increasingly globalized. But that notion of globalization is crucially important and that, of course, was what the Afghan student was concerned about, was that Obama could not actually stand up and give one message to the American people in the state of current technology and rely on that message not also resonating in Kabul. Just as he could not also give a different message in Kabul and rely on that message not being relayed back to Washington. The two things were interconnected and not separate. And of course one of the ways uh, that he resolved that problem was indeed by uh, remoteness, if you've, that's the word you want to use. Um, Paul doesn't want to use it. Uh, and I, I think in some respects I sympathize with him. But remoteness, as it has been used today, is at odds with our preoccupation with global globalization and interconnectedness. Um, and what, of course, he ended up doing um, was resolving many of his tensions by opting for special forces, uh, by opting for the use of drones, uh, by elevating the role of Afghan security forces uh, though that had absolutely been part of the, pa the, the package uh, before he became president. Um, but what followed from that was that he acquired a reputation among his own military and within Washington on the Beltway for strategic indecisiveness, a lack of clarity as to what his objectives were, um, and indeed uh, a setting of, of a timetable which was entirely inappropriate to the circumstances of Afghanistan. But what that it also showed is the challenge which any contemporary Western head of state seems to me to have, which is if you are fighting wars remotely, if they come back to bite you, if there is blowback, how do you explain that simultaneously to your people at home and continue to wage operations, let's not call it war, let's avoid the debate for the moment about what is a war, and conduct operations in theatre uh, which, uh, which are designed, are putting maybe your forces at risk, certainly putting the lives of those in the country in which you're operating at risk, um, and have a sustainable narrative. Uh, at almost the same time as Obama became president the year following, uh, David Cameron became Prime Minister uh, of the United Kingdom. And he said in 2010, that Britain would end its war in Afghanistan by 2015. And he then went on to explain that he had set that as a clear withdrawal date because the British people expected it and were right to do so. In other words, he said absolutely nothing about what the objectives were in Afghanistan uh, he, or about the fate of the people in Afghanistan and everything about what he thought, thought should be delivered by the next election in 2015. Um, and what it meant for his uh, electoral successes uh, or prospects of electoral success. Now, what I really want to address uh, in this and, and, the, and, and the lesson from that is that what has happened to strategy uh, in the post-9-11 wars, um, and one of the reasons I think uh, that remote warfare has itself developed as a subject is that the people have become a much more direct part of strategy making 
than has been the case, that was the case during the Cold War. It's not that the Cold War, and I'm going to do a bit of history because I'm a historian, not an IR person. Uh, during the, 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 the Cold War, the people certainly had a role, but in many respects, of course, it was as passive participants in nuclear deterrence and the way in which nuclear deterrence would play out. What has happened since 9-11, partly uh, because, of course, there has been a link made between operations at a distance, remotely, and <coughs> terrorism domestically, and precisely because it's now very hard to look at domestic security separately from what your forces are doing abroad, uh, and at the same time, uh, you are uh, running the risk, of course, that those who are abroad, I mean, exactly the debate that's going on now about Syria and what is happening to those uh, who've been caught up with ISIS and whether they should be relied to come back to the United Kingdom, that absolutely reflects this interconnection between what happens at a distance and what happens at home. These things cannot be so readily divorced. And then, of course, and I wasn't actually thinking as I was looking at my notes, of course, the, the, the topical one, you have the Home Secretary saying what the newspaper, what he thinks the Daily Mail uh, should expect him to say, on the one hand, and then immediately recognising that international law will not allow him to do that, on the other hand, um, and as a result, find himself in a confused position. And this seems to be typical of the situation in which heads of state have found themselves uh, in the last 15 years. They have been required to explain to their peoples who don't experience themselves as being at war for all the threat of terrorism domestically. Uh, we happen to live in extraordinarily secure societies. Uh, if we come from anywhere across Europe, um, and I know Europe is uh, a word perhaps not to be used this evening, but if, we, but if but forever we come in Europe, uh, whatever the threat, whether it's been the terrorist threat in Paris, the terrorist threat in Madrid, or the terrorist threat in London, it has not been so intense or so demanding that our peoples regard themselves as at war. So it's hard then to explain why they are at war. And what happened in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 was an inflation of the vocabulary used by George W. Bush in the first instance, uh, but also by Tony Blair and by David Cameron when he became Prime Minister in order to explain what was going on. And that vocabulary was vocabulary designed, designed for and derived from the vocabulary of popular mobilization at home. It was very largely Second World War vocabulary. Uh, the American readiness to liken 9-11 to Pearl Harbor, uh, Tony Blair's readiness to liken uh, the, uh, the handling of Saddam Hussein to appeasement and to Hitler. Um, in other words, to talk big as though these were major wars and at the same time, of course, have no intention of fighting major wars. Uh, because whatever we've decided today about remote warfare, liquid warfare, uh, limited war, which is a phrase I think I'd be happier with, uh, but whatever we decide when we use that phraseology, what we're not talking about is the Second World War. Um, and yet our politicians will use phraseology that is derived from that. And Cameron was a past master. Cameron, three times in his prime ministership, uh, talked about Britain confronting existential conflict. Um, one was after the attack in Algeria on uh, the oil refineries. One was um, after the attack at Seuss when British tourists were killed. 
uh, when extraordinarily, of course, they came back covered in coffins as though they were, sorry, their coffins covered in Union Jacks as though they were British servicemen serving abroad returning to Wooden Bassett, which is not in any way to minimize the loss of life or the, or the shock, but just a sense of what exactly is going on here and what are you trying to do with this. And the third occasion related extraordinarily to Libya and Gaddafi, um, that that too, for some reason, presented an existential crisis to Britain. Part of what I'm saying here is that it's extraordinary that in willing, in inverted commas, limited war, the vocabulary that has been used has been that of major war. And that has done two things. The first, of course, is it heightens expectations about what is at stake, but then actually massively underdelivers in practice. So those very people you're speaking to, your electorates, become confused. They're uncertain as to what the purposes of strategy are, um, and they're uncertain, therefore, of what is being asked of them. Um, and remote warfare at one level is an endeavor uh, to sidestep that issue, to get out of that dilemma. But the other issue um, is that um, for those at home, there is a real question of what their levels of participation are meant to be. Precisely where do they fit? Uh, is there responsibility in a democracy simply to return uh, their MPs at elections? Or are they involved in a more participatory form of government? Um, if you think back, um, not personally because none of you are alive, uh, but even me, uh, if you think back to the Peloponnesian War, one of the great debates about Athenian strategy uh, was that democracy, of course, produced inconsistency in terms of how strategy was conducted. If the people had too great a role in all this, uh, then there wouldn't be any coherence. Uh, and yet, most European models of governance since the Enlightenment and also of the role of the citizen in the making of war have implied that the citizen has a clear role in doing this. Um, and this is my historical bit. Because the historical bit would be this, that, that in the 18th century, as the Enlightenment confronted the issues of uh, the rights of citizens before the law, uh, the rights of citizens in terms of their human rights, that implied with it in a very Rousseau-esque sort of way that the citizen not only had a duty, uh, had these privileges and these rights, but he also had a duty, and it was he, not he, she, I'm afraid in this case, he had a, a duty to shoulder a musket on behalf of his country, uh, the better to be able to defend it. Um, and the consequence of that was a notion of participation uh, which may have been idealized rather more than existed in practice, but implied everybody had a stake in the defense of the country. Um, and Clausewitz famously uh, caught that when he talked in the Trinity about the relationship between government, uh, the armed forces, and the people. Um, the primary tr Trinity, of course, is about the qualities uh, that go into the making of war, about passion of the player, probability and chance, uh, and the role of reason. Um, uh, and let me say very quickly that I think if you read the, the, the passage on the Trinity in German, there is no necessity to equate the possession of reason with the government. Uh, it's perfectly possible for the people to be reasonable, as I read the German, um, and uh, the notion that it is simply that 
policy will tend to dominate, uh, the government will dominate, and the government will be reasonable, is a very Cold War construction of a translation, um, which is Michael Howard's and Peter Perret's work in 1976. Uh, and of course, they were influenced by the Cold War, um, and that was indeed reflected where the role of the people uh, might deem to be at that juncture, but was not necessarily a full reflection. Uh, above all, it was not a full reflection for somebody like Clausewitz, who saw the capacity of revolutionary France to mobilize the nation as a whole, to transform the powers of the state, to make war expand, and to be fought with greater intensity. Um, Clausewitz the insurgent, Clausewitz the figure who wanted to mobilize the German nation against the occupying French uh, before 1812, um, and for whom, therefore, uh, there was a fundamental equation between uh, the capacity of the nation to fight and, if you like, the possibility not of democracy. Uh, Prussia uh, in 1806, 1812, 1820s in Prussia, in Clausewitz's lifetime was certainly not a democracy, but the notion that the system certainly had a stake in the country for which he or she was fighting. Now, in Britain, that relationship between military service and the ideals of the nation and the functions of democracy is a very distant uh, and also not a particularly powerful historical president because Britain managed to avoid doing that, whereas revolutionary France, uh, right up until 1997-98, uh, saw the nation in arms as the embodiment, if you like, of what Huntington would call subjective military control, the notion that actually the way you get effective civil military relations is precisely through society's ownership of the armed forces, society's buying into the armed forces, um, that that ideal is extraordinarily absent in British history because we've only had conscription in this country between 1916 and 1918 in the First World War and between 1939 and 1960 uh, as a result of the Second World War into the early stages of the Cold War. The dominant pattern has been that indeed the armed forces of this country have been largely separate from society. And in Britain the experience of democratic involvement, if you like, in the armed forces, the subjective control, has come in a very different form. It's come in the form of taxation. Um, Britain in 1914 was the only state with an effective system uh, of income tax. Uh, uh, most states were still predominantly reliant on customs excise, and income tax was introduced by William Pitt in 1799 precisely as a war tax. So the function of income tax meant that you may not have been required as a British male to serve your country in the army uh, as a return for the liberties you enjoyed, but you were required to pay something for it, um, and particularly, of course, that it involved paying for the Navy. Uh, because the Navy was the force that mattered and the Navy was extraordinarily expensive to maintain, particularly in peacetime. So the function of taxation uh, meant that there was a degree of public participation which rela related precisely to one of the issues we've been addressing today, which is the issue of parliamentary accountability. That was the forum for making the government accountable for the use of the armed forces <laughs> because the Navy and Army estimates were debated every year in a great showpiece discussion uh, right up to 1914. Um, and the purpose of that discussion was not just to discuss whether the country could afford it. Um, it was also 
to assess how those armed forces were to be used. William Gladstone, uh, as an heir to, uh, well, as having been Robert Peel's Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1842, Peel was the first Prime Minister to use income tax in peacetime, regarded this lever as a great way to stop British armed forces being used because he thought most MPs would respond to their electorate and not approve increased taxation and was somewhat bemused and upset to find that by the late 19th century the British uh, members of Parliament and by extension the British people were prepared to accept higher taxation for stronger armed forces because they quite liked the association between colonial warfare, empire, uh, the idea of being able to send forces abroad uh, and about the ideal uh, and the association in their minds with the profits and success of the British people. Now, to bring all this up to date, um, there, uh, how am I doing for time? About 10 minutes? Okay. Wave at me when I should shut up because I just bang on. But bring this up to date, one of the most striking things in 2003 was that no government, somebody will tell me I'm wrong, that no government uh, that was sending armed forces to Iraq or Afghanistan went to their assemblies and said we need to increase taxation or increase borrowing directly in order to fund the war. Uh, there was no moment of public participation and public involvement uh, in doing that. Um, Joseph Stiglitz has written a book which I'm sure many of you read called The Three, I uh, can't remember how it's billion or trillion, trillion uh, dollar war, um, which tried to put in all the costs of the Iraq war. Uh, for the United States. The on cost, the maintenance uh, and support for wounded veterans who would survive uh, disabling wounds but might have life expectancies many decades into the future, etc., etc. And he came up with this figure of three trillion, if I remember it rightly. Uh, nobody's done that calculation for Britain. That's not quite true. I've had a research student do it. So, but, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I'm not going to create his figures because he's got the same problem. Because Actually, of course, no statement has ever been made. And if you ask MOD what the war cost, they haven't got an answer. They can't give you an answer. And one of the reasons, of course, is it's not just an MOD cost anyway. I mean, we're talking about many other costs that need to be factored into that. But my point is not so much we don't know about the costs. My point is that one of the ways in earlier wars where the country was mobilized was by the prime minister of the day standing up and saying, we're going to war, and in order to fund it, we're going to do this. You know, we might be increasing borrowing, we might be putting on to later generations, uh, or we'll say, bad news, we've got to increase income tax. So as a First World War historian, what I would say is actually it's a bit of both. Britain borrows an awful lot during the First World War, but it also uh, increases income taxes and takes income tax into the working classes. Uh, so it's not just a rich man's tax uh, by 1918. That did not happen in relation to or has not happened in relation to the wars of the last 15 years. And when the financial crash came in 2008-9, nobody even turned round to blame the wars being fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. There was no suggestion that there had been any uh, effect on uh, national finances. It was all the bank's fault, as you know, which no doubt it was. But, that, but I'm still struck that nobody took the opportunity uh, to try and make that uh, argument run. Now, the, I've got to think where I'm going quickly here. Um, one of the challenges here, too, is that 
what we are dealing with in democracies is a presumption uh, arising out of democratic peace theory that democracies, of course, don't want to fight wars, uh, that they're not interested in fighting wars, and that they are essentially benign. Um, an argument that Kant developed in 1795 um, at the wrong end of the Napoleonic Wars, um, that is to say, after the end of the war of the First Coalition, uh, when, of course, the Napoleonic and Revol Revolutionary Napoleonic Wars were just, get, get, were just getting going. Um, and that argument that a republic uh, would behave well towards another republic uh, and the republic would be inherently defensive um, and therefore not engage in, in, uh, in, in open conflict, but rather less robust by 1815. Of course, democratic peace theory does not say democracies don't go to work, war. I mean, it accepts that democracies will go to war with non-democracies. But the presumption within this is that democracy, um, a democracy is unlikely uh, or, or is not going to fight another democracy. And that argument, which is a core presumption and has been a core presumption in American foreign policy ever since Woodrow Wilson, it was very much an argument that Woodrow Wilson brought to the Paris Peace Conference 100 years ago, uh, the argument that only democracies, he thought, initially could be members of the League of Nations. Um, then he was persuaded to the contrary. Uh, but he certainly thought if the League of Nations were made up of democracies, that that would produce a, a stable, benign world order in which, uh, 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 in which there would be a world without war. Um, that argument has been very uh, extraordinarily powerful and remained very powerful in American thinking. But what it ignores, going back to the wars of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, is the capacity of democracy, as the French Revolutionary example showed, to be a force mobilizer, to be an agent, actually a far more effective agent in many ways than authoritarian regimes, for mobilizing a state for war, precisely because the people are participants in what you are doing. The people are involved in what you are doing, um, and they're committed to it. Um, and the vocabulary of 20th century wars has relied on that argument, uh, has relied on it centrally. Uh, in, even in states that we think of as authoritarian states, as states that have a capacity for uh, populism, for dictatorship, but ultimately for consent. So if you take Germany in the two world wars, uh, the Kaiser may have been an absolute monarch, but the Reichstag had universal male suffrage uh, in a way that the British Parliament did not. Probably 60% of males over 21 in 1914 in Britain had the vote, um, so a great many young men who went off to fight for Britain between 1914 and 18, either because they were under 21 or because they were not uh, the owners of households, were not enfranchised. Um, so Britain in that sense was not democratic, uh, and Germany was. Um, and in the Second World War, self-evidently, uh, Hitler had got to power through a popular vote. Um, however, uh, he may have contrived to hang on to it. But ultimately, against all expectation, there was no successful revolution against Hitler uh, from within. Um, and that is the other point and the final point that I want to end my remarks on. I'm not terribly sure where I'm going with all this, but, but <laughs> let, me, let me end with this point. And that is this that when the Napoleonic Wars ended in 1815, and given the, the awfulness of the experience within Europe over a 20-year period, 
and the monarchs uh, assembled at Vienna, the one thing they were very clear about was this wouldn't have happened in this way had it not been for the French Revolution. So whatever they did, this is Henry Kissinger's point in A World Restored, whatever else they wanted to do, they wanted to produce a stable international order which would prevent revolution. Um, and uh, what they were therefore doing uh, was creating an order uh, where the checks and balances were provided by, um, by uh, the great powers. And of course, the armies themselves, which they possessed, would be more agents of, of domestic order than they were of international order. I think we often forget that the armies of 1815 to 1914, although they certainly were designed to fight each other, were also there to act as police forces. You know, this is the model of the ANP of today, the Afghan National Police of today, the paramilitary formations designed to keep order within the country. Um, and the, the uh, you know, the Kaiser himself, it, it, after, shortly after he became emperor, uh, told his guards, he said, you do realize that the first obligation you have to do is if necessary to shoot down your own mem members of your own family if they decide to raise arms against uh, the Kaiser. In other words, the, 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 the function is domestic as much as is international. Now that notion that revolution had to be avoided at all costs meant, and it's relevant ultimately to what I want to talk about today, was meant that much of the vocabulary used in the 19th century to describe insurgency, revolution, and civil war, all of which had relationships one to the other, was used in a very selective way. Why do we, uh, uh, we can talk, and Americans will talk about the American Civil War as the War of Secession. They will talk about the rebels in relation to the Confederates. But the very fact that it is called a civil war with a recognizable, identifiable government of the southern states, with an army in uniform, and that from that we actually get, of course, the beginnings of laws of war in terms of a codified fashion, uh, was an endeavor to put that within the package of war, war rather than the package of revolution, rather than confronted as a revolution. By contrast, of course, Europe does experience revolution in 1830 and 1848, but when it happens, the great powers combine in order to control it. The reason Clausewitz dies in 1831 is he'd been mobilized to be part of an army observation to watch out for revolution in German Poland uh, for fear that it will, or Prussian Poland rather, for fear that it might spread from Russia. Um, so the fear of revolution is contained. What happens in the 20th century as a result of democratization is that the, the whole thing flips. In 1914, when war breaks out, Sir Edward Grey memorably says the lamps are going out all over Europe. He actually forgot he ever said it, and he may never have said it, but one of his friends told him he said it in the early 1920s, and he rather liked the idea. <laughs> but, but, the, 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 but the point about that is that what he's anticipating is the collapse of Europe internally through this war, the strain this war put on it. Uh, much more relevantly, of course, um, the Tsar is being advised by his more conservative advisers, for goodness sake, to go into this war. We've just had revolution in 1905. It'll bring the country down. Um, he doesn't listen. And of course, he does have to confront revolution. What happens in the First World War from the very beginning is that these states who have rejected the use of revolution 
for a hundred years precisely because they see it's destabilizing consequences embrace it because they have recognized the role of the people in the making of strategy um, and they elevate the people to being potential allies on their side so the germans in august 1914 uh, woo the ottomans in a way they've never done before with a view to getting a declaration of jihad, which they do get in November 1914, in order to undermine the Russian, the French, and the British empires from within. And of course, also establish contacts with the Irish uh, and engaging gun running uh, to support the Easter Rebellion in, in 1916. And the British do exactly the same thing. Um, Lawrence, of course, and his role is the most famous example of British revolutionary activity. But the British and the French are smuggling funds into the independent socialists in Germany by 1917-18, to try and erode the country from within. And what happens at the end of the war? There is revolution. There is revolution not just in Russia in 1917, but in Germany in 1918 and Austria-Hungary in 1918. And both those empires collapse in part in consequence. Uh, I, 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 the fact, of course, that they collapse when they're being militarily defeated as well makes the cause and effect here obscure. But what that also means is that in 1939-45, how do people think about the possibility of revolution in Germany? And the notion that Germany might collapse internally is central to Allied planning by 1944-45. Uh, at the time of D-Day, the Allies' expectations, at least according to Hinsley's History of British Intelligence, Second World War, is that Germany is that Hitler would have been toppled internally by Germans by the end of 44. The war would be over. By, 44, by the end of 44, which of course didn't happen because Hitler himself had anticipated that threat. And after the July bomb plot, Heinz Guderian, the new chief of the general staff, insists on every soldier reaffirming his oath of personal loyalty to Hitler uh, in order to assure that the Wehrmacht remains entirely solid with the regime. So what is going on here? is an acceptance of insurgency, of revolution, as a weapon of war. Um, and in many respects, of course, that is precisely the theme that we have come around to today, a recognition of the role of people, of the people, in waging war and being an instrument of war. And I would argue, and I am ending, don't worry, uh, I would argue one of our challenges today, one of our confusions about what we're doing, and one of the pressures, of course, to create if we have created something called remote warfare. I'm not entirely persuaded of that, uh, but I recognize what it is that that phrase tries to capture, that desire to get away from responsibilities for wars that have got out of control. That one of the reasons we've got ourselves in that position is precisely because we have failed to engage in a sensible debate with our publics about what we're doing with war and how we see it working and how that might work out in terms of strategy. And it seems to me central in this, and this is where I will pick up on the, on, on the remote warfare argument, that we need a discussion which is not only informed and sensible, which includes parliamentary debate and some element of parliamentary accountability, but also includes a conceptual framework that makes sense for the public in terms of what we are doing. So it might be limited war, it might be remote warfare, it might be influence through the use of armed forces and through the engagement. But if that's what we think we need to do, we need to explain it and account for it rather than to suppress the discussion. Thank you very much.